So good morning. Welcome to this Labor Day weekend. We're glad that you're here worshiping together with us. We're beginning a brand new series called Better Together. It's all over the front of your bulletin. You have an insert that is in that bulletin that you're going to find extremely helpful this morning, especially from the front and the back side. We always put on the outlines a digging deeper that allows you to go a little bit beyond some of the things we could discuss and have time to explore here this morning. You see on the platform we have a table set for many. And it's always great when people can dine together around the common table. We're going to be receiving communion as well. And one of the things that the believers did in the early days is they had their communion together around their uh, fellowship of food and love and grace and provisions for one another. So we want to follow in that uh, theme as well. I want to let you know that uh, a number of us uh, took on an assignment this a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we had a very challenging Uh, attempt to do something that we couldn't do except that we discovered that we are better together. And so I want to show you a little video of that episode right now. So we heard about this thing called the plane pole. It's a fundraiser for the Special Olympics up at the Long Beach Airport where you go and you have to pull a plane. And we thought, you know, some people get a whole team together to do this, but we've got Pastor Dave, so, I mean, (laughs) he should be able to do it himself, right? That's what we thought. Well, I looked at this little airplane that was sitting over there. In fact, it's a highway patrol airplane. And I thought, this ought to be easy to pull. So I picked up the rope. I pulled as hard as I could. I couldn't get it to budge an inch. Now, the challenge was, right behind me was a 757. And we were there to pull that giant airplane, and I thought there's no way we're ever going to get that to budge even a little bit, let alone 12 feet that we wanted to pull it. That's right. So we got a whole team together, 25 people. Because there was, like you said, no way we could do it just by ourselves, but 25 of us, we got together, we trained, we prepared, and we went out there and we pulled that plane. Yeah, it was incredible. In fact, uh, we were just one second slower than the fastest group that pulled it, so I was very impressed, actually, from that. Yes. I thought that was a good job. Now, the exciting thing is that we're beginning a brand new series this uh, fall on Ephesians. And the whole theme is how we are better together. Building together what God's called us to do, we're always stronger when we do it together. One of us couldn't pull the plane, but as a team, we can. Just like... Not one of us individually can make this huge impact for the kingdom of God, but together we can. And together, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be better together. So he did pull that airplane. It was a 757 out there at Long Beach Airport. And here's the little board that shows the various times. If you look very closely oh, uh, over here, well, you may not be able to see it. The rail may be in the way. But you see Calvary Church, better together, 6.9 seconds. And the fastest team with these bulky, huge firemen, policemen, all of them are twice as big as any of us, and they simply pulled it one second faster than us. So look at us and them compared together. So It really shows that, uh, you know, none of us could have done that individually. None of us could have done that even with half that team. It took all 25 of us to make it happen. And you know, in ministry, in the church, your marriage, your relationships, your job, your spiritual growth, if you think you can do it alone, 
It's as silly as us trying to pull that 757 alone. We do need one another. One other good illustration of that, Joe and I went down to the science building in L.A. a couple of weeks ago to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. While we were looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can barely see the Dead Sea Scrolls because of all the living people standing in front of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but uh, nevertheless, we went there to see them and the history of that. Right next door in the same complex is the space shuttle. And, uh, I, you know, I should be more intrigued by the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I was really fascinated by this thing. Uh, I watched that as it was pulled through the streets of L.A. here uh, last year or so. And here's the, the uh, space shuttle that is housed now as a museum piece. And as you look at it, you can see underneath it are all these black tiles you probably have heard about. And these are the black tiles that keep the heat from penetrating it as it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. And each of those little tiles, you can see, have numbers on them, if you can look real closely. I talked to one of the curator men, and he showed me one of these little tiles. He happened to be carrying one with him. And it feels like a very lightweight styrofoam, something you just want to throw it away. But he says each of those costs $2,000, so he said, be careful with it. And so I was as careful as I could be with a $2,000 piece of styrofoam. And I said, what holds that on there? And he says, well, you go down to Home Depot and buy some silicone glue. That's what held it on there. I thought, wow, this is amazing. Uh, and so in any case, what he explained to me, and that maybe you've heard this, but it's always fascinating to me. There are 24,000 of these little tiles on the underbelly of the space shuttle. And each of them were custom made for the location that they are in. You couldn't take its neighbor and swap it because it wouldn't be the right thickness and dimensions and width and breadth. So each one was designated, and each one has a number on it, so it can only go in that specific spot. So 24,000, all custom-made, each of them have to be in the one location, or it won't work. It won't work. And I thought that is another illustration of how we're better together. That is what God did for each of us. Each of us in this room have an identification before God. We have a name. But He knows us by name. He knows us individually. And each of us have different DNA. We each are so different than each other. And yet there's a commonality amongst all of us that as each of our differences come together and we become who God wants us to be in serving together, working side by side, taking our differences, putting many of them aside so that we can be in the place that God wants us to be, we are able to more powerfully do the work that God's called us to do than if one or two or three tiles are missing. And you miss a few tiles on a space shuttle as it comes into reentry, that space shuttle is going to burn up. And when those of us in the congregation called Calvary Church or the church at large think that God doesn't need me, I don't have what it takes, I'm not cut out right, I don't have all that God requires. When we have that mindset, then it weakens everybody. And we all become vulnerable. So I want us to be a church that truly grows together, better together, working in concert with one another, realizing that we're all uniquely made and created by God, but that we all together can really match up in the roles that God has for us. We're going to be showing you ways that that can be taking place in some specific uh, elements of our ministry as we move ahead. To help us to understand how we can do it better together, we're going to go to a land that we call Turkey today. And in those days, it was known as Asia Minor. We're going to go to the city called Ephesus, and we're going to study the book of Ephesians. 
And you can see on the map there that uh, there is a region right on the coast. Ephesus was kind of the New York City of the day. A major complex where there was all kinds of commerce that would go through that community. This morning I simply want to introduce to you Ephesus and Ephesians and give you four takeaways as to how we know that we're working better together. A little bit of background about Ephesus and the city. There are a number of things in the Bible, a number of passages in the Bible that relate relate to Ephesus. You find aspects of Ephesus in the book of Acts. First and second Timothy was written to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And you also find a a relevant passage in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you also find a description of the seven churches of Turkey or Asia Minor in those days. And John, the apostle, wrote those letters as well. And I'm going to read a little bit from from Revelation chapter 2, where we read one of the aspects about the church at Ephesus. Here's what John wrote to Ephesus in Revelation 2, and this was after Paul wrote Ephesians. Revelation 2 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do, that you have hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and also I hate. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you went back 2,000 years, or if you go with us to Turkey next year, plug, you will learn why John, why Paul, why Luke, why they write what they write. If you read, for example, what John wrote to the church at Ephesus, John wrote to them, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Why did John say to Ephesus, the one, Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand? In the days in which Paul lived, and all the way up to the fourth century, there was a power source or a godlike source called Mithra. Mithra was a organized religious activity that worshipped Mithra, and in that mindset, Mithra was this, this power that held together what they said in that first century church, that he held together the seven stars of the sky. And the seven stars, if I can remember them all, are the sun, the moon, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, and some others. But they are the seven stars, the sun, the moon, and those other five planets. 
And so Mithra says, I hold those together. And that became a competing religious force against Christianity, all the way up to Constantine of the 4th century. And then John writes to the church at Ephesus, to the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. It's not Mithra, John writes. It's Jesus. And so he holds those seven stars in his hand. And so we see culture, background, context, history. Those essential truths that were evident in the church at Ephesus, they are fleshed out as to why does John write what he writes? Why does Paul write what he writes? Why does Luke in Acts write what he writes? It's in response to what was going on in those days. When you and I respond, we need to respond to the false teaching. There's always a competing force to Christianity. Jesus is always going to have his competitors. In those days, it was Mithra. And then you look down in verse 7 of Revelation 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you went to Ephesus in the days when Paul was there, you would have seen a structure like this. And it's a temple to Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S. And that was their great, that was one of the seven wonders of the world. In the middle of the temple of Artemis was a garden. And in that garden there were linden trees, two of them. And those two linden trees were called the trees of life. And people would come, they would flock there. Especially pregnant women would go there so they could have their babies and be unconstrained by some of the evil that was taking place, we'll talk about next week, that was taking place with babies being uh, given up. And so when John writes to the church at Ephesus, you have a temple there, Artemis the Great. And Artemis claims that uh, you can go to the tree of life and receive life through that false god. John writes, Ephesus... To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. It's not in the temple of Artemis, but it is in the paradise of God. So you see how he writes to the culture, to the times, to the history, to the aspects that are taking place that they're competing with. And so all this adds this background that allows it to take place. If you go to there today, Temple Artemis is no more. The paradise of God, of course, continues to reign. And there's Artemis on the side that uh, was the temple that they would worship this uh, multi-breasted figure and uh, all the kinds of evil that would accompany that. You see this temple of Artemis being referenced in Acts chapter 19. If you turn over to Acts in 19, this is where Paul would come to the city of Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, we read these words. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Cai, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And then he, having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia, Asia Minor, Turkey, Ephesians area, for a while. At about that time there occurred no small disturbance for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. 
So Demetrius would make silver shrines of this figure that you see on the screen. And this silversmith was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Turkey, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Now, only not only is this uh, danger that this trade of ours might fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be even dethroned from her magnificence. And then he goes on, and a riot occurs in the city. A riot occurs because Paul preached the gospel. People were turning away from Artemis, and they were worshiping Jesus, and so they weren't buying the silver shrines of Artemis, and so therefore all the craftsmen are in fear of losing business. And then he sugarcoats it with saying, well, the temple of Artemis is so great and magnificent, we don't want to lose that e either. But frankly, it always comes down to the money. And so you see how what was taking place in this city. There was the agora where people would gather together, and we'll talk about next week this whole important concept of why Paul begins the book by speaking about us being adopted into his family. And I want to show you some of the history as to why that would strike a familiar chord. Why did Paul begin by talking about he chose us, he predestined us, and he chooses to adopt us? You'll find out historically why that is where Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians. And then we find this theater where the men were preaching and where the riots would occur and they would go into that theater and try to drag them out. And this is where the riots would be consumed. As you wander around the city of Ephesus, you come to a relic like this. This is the Church of the Virgin Mary, where they had uh, ecumenical councils that would meet there. And it's believed that the Apostle John, remember when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus said to John, take care of my mother, Mary. And so he took Mary into his care. And it's believed that John then lived in Ephesus. As he wrote the book of Revelation, as he wrote the letters to the seven churches, he was familiar with this area, and it's believed that Mary was there with him. And so, as is custom in so many of these uh, places that you go to tour, they build churches after people like Mary. And so this is the church of the Virgin Mary. This is what they believe to be Virgin Mary's home. And so as you travel to these areas, you see some of these things that in many ways perhaps have elements of truth and historical roots to them, although we can't verify all of them. But as this church gathers together, this church at Ephesus, you see some of the backdrop of those things that they were struggling with. Now let me give to you what I believe are four takeaways that we need to understand if we're going to be a group of people that are truly better together. And the first thing that I noticed in this introduction is this letter was written from Paul to the Ephesians, and he wants them to unite together. One of the big things that was happening in the church at Ephesus in those days is that the Jews and the Gentiles were having a hard time coming together. The Jewish people would look at the Gentiles and count them as nothing but dogs. And the Gentiles would have nothing to do with the Jewish people. They certainly weren't worshiping in the temple of Artemis. 
And they had this other God. And so there was this division, this dividing wall that you will see that we will explore together. And he wants to remove that dividing wall. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We're all becoming one body in Christ. And so one of the major themes that you see throughout Ephesians is this coming together. He calls this a, a household of God, a dwelling of God, a holy temple of God. We're being fitted together to become this holy temple. There is so much about unity and coming together. And it is essential that you and I be part of that ministry. In America, in our mindset so many times, and even in my own mindset, I really do believe I can see an airplane like that and think, I don't need anyone else. I'll do it on my own. Remember when you were two years old? I do it on my own. Remember that? Remember your kids, grandkids? They just want to do it on their own. No, we don't do it on our own. None of us are accomplished enough to be able to do it on our own. And here is our calling. What does it look like when we live better together? What, what would that look like? Well, here is one theme, Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Paul writes to them. This is Paul writing back to the city of Ephesus. Paul spent three years with the Ephesians. Three years. That's a long time for Paul as he traveled around so much. This is part of what he said to them. I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, what was the nature of that relationship? Let me show you some of the qualities. You've listed, I've listed them on the outline, but I want to take you into the book of Acts and show you how they are being fleshed out. When the Apostle Paul was with them, he left, and then he gathered together with the uh, elders and the rulers of the church at Ephesus in a little community called Miletus. And there they gathered together to be able to say goodbye. And this particular passage in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 37, we see the nature of their relationship. Paul is a living illustration of what it looks like to be better together. And I'm here to say, each of these qualities that you see listed there on your little outline, I'm going to show you in this text, they need to be part of healthy relationships. If you're married, these better be foundational to you. If you have friends, these ought to be growing phenomenons with you. If you want to have a healthy relationship in your place of business, in your school, in your neighborhood, the more these are in place in those relationships, the greater the quality of those relationships. And by all means, if these aren't happening at Calvary Church, then we're just a bunch of people that choose to gather together every so often. But we're not doing all that God calls us to do. So this is the emphasis. Notice some of the things that took place in Acts 20, verse 17 following. And this was Paul's farewell message to the elders of Ephesus. And it reveals the nature of the relationship that was so healthy. In verse 17, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders. And after he agreed to them, he began to relate one by one the things which had been taking place with them. I'm sorry. Let me turn back one page. I was beginning to read that and thinking, this doesn't sound right. And you were thinking, Dave, when are you going to discover that you're reading the wrong passage? I can read your mind. 
Acts 20, 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Investment of time. You elders know I was with you the whole time. Three years plus. Three years he's with them. Relationships don't start and stop in a meeting, in a minute, in a moment. They are investments of time. You don't build quality relationships on the fly. You don't have microwave relationships. You don't do this, you sit around a table and choose a date uh, and then hope it works out. It takes time. I've been married to Joy for now 41 years and I'm still learning new things. And that's a good thing. You think you have it figured out after 41 years. I'm still learning. I still feel like a kindergarten kid. It's an investment of time. Secondly, it's a humility of heart. Serving the Lord with all humility. I put on the back side of the outline, the digging deeper, you can look at the little chart there. I compare what humility is, I compare what pride is. The problem with most of our relationships is that we have too much pride. And we say, well, I'm not a proud person. Well, read what pride looks like in relationships. And I tell you, well, I read through that list and I made that list. I say, I tend to do what pride says. I tend to move away from what humility says. Because when I take a relationship and I begin to talk with someone, too often, in pride, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say or what's going on in my life. And I'm not truly clued in. I'm not fully present to what that person is saying to me. In humility, I put aside my own thoughts, my own feelings. And I enter in and I am present with this person. So humility versus pride, I encourage you to evaluate that. And he comes to the heart of humility. He also came and he was open and authentic. He had tears and he had trials. Serving the Lord in verse 19 with all humility, with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. He says, I came and I was open. I was authentic. I didn't cover it up. I was transparent. He was really transparent, not politician transparent, but he was fully transparent. And he was with them in tears and trials. You ever spent time with someone who was crying over something? I tell you what, there's a bond that comes in that relationship that is unlike any other relationship. And when you cry with someone else, you feel like you want to apologize. And I've had any number of times when I've had people I'm meeting with, and they are apologizing for their tears and say, No, you don't need to apologize for your heart being open and willing to engage. And that was the Apostle Paul. When you get to that level of relationships, you know that you are truly working in a healthy way. We also see that he was able to communicate truth to them. Verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of the repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't back down. You can read 27 to 31. He was full on, fully aware, giving them the full truth, The temple of Artemis is a fraud. Jesus Christ is the true tree of life. He was very open and honest with him. He was selflessly motivated. In verse 33 it says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that 
these hands ministered to my own needs, to the men who were with me, and everything I showed you that by working with uh, hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He says, I didn't come to gain anything from you. I didn't take any of your money. I worked hard on my own. And when a relationship is based on a selfless motivation, that I'm not doing this for any gain on my part. There's no upside in this for me. But I want to invest my time, my tears, my trials, because I believe that's the calling that God has placed upon my life. And that it creates this tremendous emotional bond. Notice this in verse 37 and 38. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to the ship. They wept aloud. They embraced him. They were grieving over the fact that they would not see him. There is a deep and abiding emotional bond that's taking place between Paul and these elders at Ephesus that over the period of three years they acquired a relationship that is unlike any other. Now that's powerful. I encourage you. Look at that list. Does it describe your marriage? Does it describe your friendships? Does this describe the community in which you are gathered at Calvary Church? That's what it looks like. That's our calling. That's when we know we're better together. Our commitment, we need to be working together because we will suffer. As Paul says, in tears and trials I came to you. When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he was in a prison cell in Rome. The book of Ephesians is is one of the four that we'd call the prison epistles. So Paul writes to them in a prison cell, unfairly, unjustly, being detained from his own freedom. But he writes out of this prison cell and he says, look, that's why I'm here. It's for Jesus Christ. He doesn't let the suffering get the better of him. So when Paul then writes to them and they love him so much, they're distressed over the fact that he's in prison. But then Paul writes to them these words, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for therefore your glory. Paul didn't ask to be released from prison. He didn't say, pray that I get out of this miserable cell. I'm so sorry, so feeling so sorry for myself. I'm so depressed over how life is unfair for me. And God is not, where is God? Where is God when I need Him? This is not a good God that I trusted. Served Him all my life and I end up in a prison cell. That was not Paul. Paul says, I'm here. But in this prison cell, I write to you. And I don't want you to lose heart over my situation. That's powerful. In the writings of Paul, there are two times that he talks about losing heart as believers. And we'll talk about this when we get to Ephesians 3. But simply put, we can lose heart in suffering. And in Galatians 6, he says, you can lose heart in doing good, but not seeing fruit. There's an easy risk that you and I lose heart over the trials and the tribulations and the tears that come. But God says, it's in those moments that I do my best work. So don't lose heart. And we'll explore that when we get to Ephesians 3. And here's our challenge. Even as we talk about loving one another, caring for one another, here is the challenge. Be warned. We can do good works with good doctrine, 
but we can fall out of love with the Lord and with others. There's a tendency, and there has been a tendency amongst the evangelical church and churches like Calvary Church over the years. We're here over 80 years. There's a tendency for those of us who promote good doctrine, biblical teaching, exposition from God's Word, have good theology, good systematic theology, have it all, have all the I's dotted, the T's crossed, and we have it all accurate. We really know the truth, but there is a tendency for us to be like that and then to not love people we can do that that's why he wrote to the john wrote to the ephesians this i just read it a moment ago i'll read it again to the angel of the church in ephesus the leader the messenger i know your deeds and your toil your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. They are doctrinally right on. We will not endure evil in this world. And they will speak against evil and speak against bad doctrine. The temple of Artemis. We won't swallow up this kind of false teaching that goes on all around us. Or the worship of Mithra who claims to hold the seven stars. But then Paul writes to them, but. You hate to have a but in the midst of compliments. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You don't have a love and relationship with Jesus Christ. And it has probably some manifestation in terms of their love for one another, for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's so easy to become so doctrinally pure and work hard in perseverance against evil, but it doesn't look like we love anybody. And that's our challenge. That even as we pursue truth, we also pursue love. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. We can do both. Some people say, well, you just just got to love everybody, but you have to put down truth, or you have a lot of truth, but you can't love each other. You do both. Speaking, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. That's what we need. And so that love is where we are better together, so that our character has this. When our character is united in attitude, heart, and deed, this is the character of our relationship. As he says in Ephesians 4, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, and with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's the heart of the character of those who are better together. So we've seen the calling, the commitment, the challenge. And here is the character of that heart, attitude, mind, and deed of what it looks like to be better together. One of the things we want to try to do each time is take a moment to sort of digest. So I'd like to give you a moment. You've got the back side of the digging deeper for you to look at, think about. There I talk about relationships that have humility, tears, and trials. Some of you probably have had relationships that have humility, tears, and trials, and they are tough. But I'd like for you to ask and answer in your own heart and then with your neighbor. That's why we had you put name tags on. We actually want us to actually know names. You know, people love to hear their names. I can't tell you how many people come up to me and say, Do you remember my name? And I say, Holy Spirit, I need divine revelation right now. (laughs) But we want you to engage with your neighbor. And here is the question amongst the others that are on the backside that you want to look at. And here's the question. In what way will this series better together 
help the relationships in my life. What relationships? How do you think it will help them? Where can you grow? And how are you doing so well already? Would you just spend about three minutes with one another, gathered together with those of you who are are you're sitting with, we invite you to engage on that topic. And I'll be right back up after three minutes. Okay, let me have you return your focus uh, up front here. Thank you for spending a little three minutes, three minutes with your neighbor, talking about relationships. We believe in the truth of God's Word, and we're going to be standing fast and firm on that and haven't in over 80 years changed what we believe. But one thing that is constantly growing and evolving and developing is our capacity to love one another. That is a development that is essential. And that's why I encourage you this coming week. Would you spend some time evaluating yourself? I do that. If I've had to do it, I'm going to force you to do it too. Because it's not always fun to tell you the truth. But evaluate from pride and humility and, and where the relationships. We want this series to be so fruitful for the relationships in our lives with Jesus Christ and with one another. And so we pray to that end, that God would bless in in an abundant way that we become that healthy and continue to be a healthy body and relationships under Jesus Christ and His leadership in our lives. We'd like to go into a next phase of relationships, and it's called communion. Communion is, is a word that talks about communing with the Father in heaven. We don't commune with a holy God as sinful people. We go through the person of Jesus Christ who holds the seven stars, who has the tree of life, who gave His life for us, who lives forever. Artemis is dead, but Jesus Christ is living today. He's reigning over us. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, that's the beginning point. To say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have failed you but I believe that you died for me to pay for my sins. Your blood was shed on that cross to be a cleansing work in my life. And so I receive your forgiveness today, and I thank you for changing me to become a child of yours. If that is your relationship with God, I invite you to join with us as we commune together around the bread and the cup. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus. Then we receive the cup, the blood of Christ. And it's our way of saying, yes, Lord, with you I have a healthy relationship. And I thank you for it. So I'm going to invite the leaders to serve the bread. And let me pray over this bread as it symbolizes that precious human character trait of Christ. He was fully God but fully man. So he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he had trials and tears as well. Let me give thanks to God for that. Thank you, Father, for this bread as it symbolizes the body of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for his life that he lives now in heaven and he can live within us in that mysterious, miraculous way. God, we're here to remember you and to remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that he died for us, to forgive us,
so that we can have you as our Holy Father in heaven. And now we thank you for this symbolic act. In Jesus' name, amen.